So you can go ahead and open up your Bibles if you have them with you. If you so choose, you can open your Bibles up to Ephesians chapter 5. Our sermon text will be found in verses 22 through 33. Now, now before I read our passage, I, I have a super big challenge for you today. The challenge is I want you to do the best detective work you can possibly do to see if you can figure out exactly what it is my topic is for this sermon today. So you're going to need to pay really, really close attention as we read through this to see if you just might be able to pick up on it. So with that by way of warning... Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. End of reading. Now, it might not be obvious to all of you who have gathered here today, but to you super sleuths out there who paid very close attention to what was just read, you may have picked up on the fact that, yes, today we're going to be talking about marriage. And we're going to be talking about marriage because today is the first of a four-week series in which we're looking at what the Bible says about family, about marriage, about children, about widows, and a few other subjects in the meantime. Now, let me say a couple things at the outset of this sermon on marriage. First of all, even though I hope to give you much to ponder today, I am well aware that it is simply not possible to plumb the depths of this subject in the 25 minutes we typically have for sermons. Therefore, my sermon will be three hours long today. I love the person that that actually cheered, like, yay! So obviously we're going to be doing kind of a broad overview of the subject today because we are going to try and keep it to a normal length of time. But secondly, more importantly, let me very, very clearly say to you that I am not preaching this sermon to you today as the expert on the matter. For one thing, my wife is here, and if I was to present myself as such, I fear that we might be interrupted by frequent bursts of laughter. (laughs) 
For another thing, I myself am well aware of the ways in which I can always be a better husband and the ways in which I fall short in being a good servant to my wife. And so I don't want you to live under any illusion that I'm sitting up here or standing up here as the expert telling you to follow me. No, I'm just here to tell you what the Bible says. In fact, what my goal is here today is based on what the Scriptures say in the text we just read and in, in other texts throughout the Bible is I just want to tell you basically what the Bible presents as the perfect marriage. Since, since God instituted this, since God has created this institution, he has a, a blueprint for it. And that's what we're going to look at today. So what does the Bible say is the perfect marriage? Well, first of all, the perfect marriage is, and this is going to be obvious to many of you, but it is meant to be a lifelong covenant of mutual love and care for building each other up. It's meant to be a lifelong covenant of mutual love and care for building each other up. Let's cover that first part about the the lifelong covenant thing. Our text, quoting Genesis, talking about the very first marriage God institutes, says in verse 31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, those words, hold fast and one flesh, are very important because when Jesus explains this text in the Gospels, he says that means that it was meant to be a relationship bonded for the rest of the partner's lives. Why did God set up this institution in the beginning? Well, it's pretty simple. Even in paradise, God looked at the man all alone, just surrounded by animals and various plant life, and said, it's not good for man to be alone. And indeed, it's not good for mankind to be alone. We need someone else. Now, this does not imply at all that everyone will get married or will be married in life. The Bible has plenty of examples of people that don't get married. For example, our Lord Jesus does not get married. The great apostle Paul, we have no evidence, ever was married. So this isn't a you-must-get-married sort of situation, but it is a reality that the majority of people end up getting married. And the purpose of it was that one may walk through life, at least part of the purpose, no longer alone. But they might have someone to walk this journey with them. As a matter of fact, when God refers to Eve after he creates her, he calls her a helper fit for Adam, perfectly fit for him, meant to complement him. They are meant to complement one another. And yet even deeper than the need to avoid loneliness, marriage was instituted to be a safe place for us to be truly vulnerable with one another. One of my favorite passages describing marriage in the very early going stages before sin enters the world is a very, very short descriptor of the way things were in the garden. We're told that man and his wife were naked and unashamed. Now that was physically true, but obviously there's much more highly charged symbolic meaning behind that. The meaning was is that they didn't feel any need to hide, to put up any facade, to, to do the things that we're so used to doing. 
Indeed, Paul sort of echoes this when he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Just as Christ cleanses the church in the waters of baptism, working for our good, marriage is to be a place where we work for our spouse's good and, quote, cherish them, value them, treat them as treasure. Now, of course, when sin enters the picture, everything changes. What what do you see? The first thing that happens, if you remember the very, very creation story, men and women hide from each other. They try to... They try to sew clothing on because they're now ashamed of their nakedness and they hide from God. And such is the natural state of humanity ever since. Nevertheless, one of the key reasons God has established this institution is that we might have someone, however imperfectly, that we can feel safe with that we can reveal ourselves to. And not be afraid that they're going to laugh at us or mock us or judge us. The truth is, for any of you who have been married for any length of time, you know that your spouse, no matter how much you want to control it, will see the good, bad, and the ugly. Goal put out there by the scriptures. In a perfect marriage, again, I'm talking perfect, is that your spouse, upon seeing those things, would still love you. I do need to make a note. I do recognize there are times in which a marriage may need to end. The Bible gives reasons for those times. Adultery, abandonment, Uh, Abuse, I would categorize as under that term, abandonment. But again, what I'm putting forward to you today is the perfect marriage. A lifelong covenant in which mutual love and care are given for the building up of one another. The famed preacher E.V. Hill told a story once at his wife's funeral In the story, he was lauding her for his constant support of him all throughout his life and how much it meant to him that she never tried to, oh, make him feel bad at times when it may have been natural for her to do so. Recounted a story one time early in their marriage when they were a typical young, struggling, fairly poor couple. He had come home from work and he saw as he walked in the home candlelight everywhere. His wife walked out of the kitchen, and he said, well, what's going on with the candlelight here? And she said, well, I just figured we'd have supper by candlelight. And he said, well, that sounds groovy to me. And so he sat down for a little bit, and they talked, and everything seemed like just a romantic dinner. And then at one point, he had to go into the restroom, and he had to go to the bathroom, and he went to turn on the light, and no light. She had forgotten to put a candle in there. And then he went into the bedroom. No light. And he walked back out, and he said, Honey, did they turn off the lights? 
And she started to cry. And she said, I ran out of money while paying the bills, and I know you worked so hard to provide us that. I didn't want to tell you. So I thought we could just have dinner by candlelight. In retelling that story at his wife's funeral, Hill says, at that moment, she could have cut me down. But she chose to build me up. This leads to my second point about the perfect marriage. The perfect marriage is filled with trust and sacrifice. The way Paul says it in our text is, Uh, The wife submits and the husband sacrifices, or the husband loves. But when you boil it all down and you look at how he describes these things, it really could be translated or understood to mean trust and sacrifice. What does it mean to submit? I know we hear that word and alarm bells come up. Well, let let me first tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean inferiority. God makes it abundantly clear in his word that both men and women are created in his image and therefore equal. It is is also not unquestioning obedience to one's husband. 1 Samuel 1 shows us a married couple arguing and there doesn't seem to be any rebuke about the situation at all. It's okay to discuss and to dialogue and yes, to even argue about the course of action one takes in one's home. Submission is certainly not sinning on behalf of your spouse. In other words, if your spouse asks you to be disobedient to God or your conscience, you say no. Submission is not meant for all women and all men. In other words, it's specific here to the relationship of marriage. This is why I say an accurate way of describing this word submit is trust. It is the willingness of the wife to entrust herself and her kids, if they have them, into her husband's hands. Again, not if he's calling you to sin or go against your conscience. On the other hand, what does it mean for the husband to love his wife? Well, the text uses the example over and over again of Jesus loving the church. What does Jesus do for the church? He's crucified for her. He gives up his very life for. So again, there's this mutual self-giving. If it's working right, if it's perfect, there's this kind of perfect circle going on where the husband is actively sacrificing for his wife and the wife in turn is submitting to her husband. And there's this beautiful relation, this symbiosis that's happening there. But the truth is, I think... I think sometimes in Christian circles, and us preachers are guilty of it, we can use these words, submit, love, respect, sacrifice, whatever you want to say, and we can leave it too abstract. And so when a guy hears sacrifice, they think, well, yeah, of course, I'm willing to step out in front of traffic to save my family, or I'm willing to go out and see if there's a bad guy trying to break into my home. Yes, I'll do that. But the truth is, for most of us, those kinds of examples don't come up all that often. And it's not just the big stuff. And so, you know, let me me just give you something that I have given to couples that I do premarital counseling with. When I try and describe what this actually looks like 
in the day-to-day? Well, it looks like going out of your way to compliment each other on a regular basis for no good reason, if you don't feel, even if you don't feel like it. There's an incredibly powerful but sad song by Pearl Jam called Just Breathe. Now, I don't know exactly why the song was written, but based on my inference from the lyrics, it seems that it's written from the perspective of a man who wishes that he had told someone that he deeply loves how much he appreciated, he appreciated them. The song is tinged with regret, and the chorus says, Did I say that I need you? Did I say that I want you? Oh, if I didn't, I'm a fool. No one knows this more than me. It's all too easy in the day-to-day. Believe me, I'm guilty of it. It's all too easy in the day-to-day to just take one spouse for granted. To not take the moment to say, thank you. Or you look pretty today. Or honey, I'm so proud of how hard you work for this family. But it really does mean the world more often than you'd think. On the other hand, if you want to wash your ears out of that Pearl Jam song and want to hear something beautiful, I saw a video a little while back of a 93-year-old man caressing his wife of 73 years who is inflicted with dementia, and all he's doing in the hospital bed is praising her and telling her how beautiful she is, and he's singing to her their wedding song. If you do that kind of stuff, mm, I'll tell you. Hey, be liberal about apologizing when you make a mistake. Because you will. And you have. And don't be afraid to admit it. Goes a whole lot further than pretending you didn't mess up. Here's a real practical thing. And those of you who have been married for a long time, you just know it. You just know it. But it's true, and it can become a bigger deal than you'd even think. But even when you don't feel like washing them dishes or folding that laundry, laying around, try to do it. And... If your spouse, who you were expecting to do it, doesn't do it, try really hard to be gracious. Hey, let each other have a nap. Especially if you all have kids. Sacrifice. Respect. Submission. No, honey, it's okay. Go take a couple hours. I'll take care of things. Give each other little gifts. And I mean little. I think for a lot of us, we tend to make too big of a deal about this kind of thing. I remember being at a youth conference years ago. I was one of the youths there. And this speaker got up and started making fun of all of us guys in the sanctuary. He said, man, I watch you fools this weekend, and you're all trying to act tough and impress the ladies by picking up stuff and throwing it, and you all look like idiots. And of course, I laughed a little bit, but also was like, shut up, you know. 
But he's right, of course, you know. I mean, it's, it's, it's very typical. And he said, boys, if you want to you impress the girl you like, he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to get a little post-it note. I want you to write on that post-it note her name. Go up to her and just say, I was thinking about you. Now, I watched the boys at that time sitting next to me, and they're all like, <coughs> and I watched the girls, and they were all like, Little gifts. And I've said this many times before in speaking about my grandfather and his advice to me about never giving up. The perfect marriage isn't going to give up when, when the tough stuff comes. Now I could go on. There's a hundred little tips that one can give. But the point is, the point is, the perfect marriage is meant to be a picture of God's relationship with us. That's the whole idea. That's the whole amazing point behind this section of Paul's letter. Just as the church trusts in Jesus Christ and submits to Him, the wife is called to trust in her husband. Just as Jesus gives everything for His bride, the church... The husband is called to give everything for the good of his wife. And as the perfect marriage is lived out, somehow, some way, God uses it to be a reflection of how he treats us, a witness to the world. That's the idea Paul's getting at here. Yes, the perfect marriage can do amazing things. But of course, there's just one little problem. Nobody has ever had the perfect marriage. We inevitably let each other down. Instead of submitting, we fight. Instead of loving, we give in to selfishness. Instead of being vulnerable, we protect ourselves. So before we walk out of here all ready to either be a good spouse in the future, if you're thinking you might get married one day, or if you've been married for 30 or 40 years and you say, I'm going to do some of the things that Pastor Eric has talked about today. I'm going to get that post-it note and give it to my wife when I get home. That's great. Do it. But before you, you come out of here thinking in terms of your marching orders... You need to know that because your spouse will inevitably let you down in some way, that you each, whether you're ever going to get married or not, need a true and better spouse. You need to look yourself to Jesus Christ as your true and better spouse. Because when we are faithless, He remains faithful. When we fail to submit, He shows us He was willing to submit Himself to the flesh that He might save us. When we are selfish, He is selfless. When we hold grudges, He lavishly forgives. As the perfect spouse, He continually comes down to serve us and give us grace. And I would dare say if we have any hope of being and reflecting that, then we need to meditate 
on that reality first of all that he does for us. One of my favorite illustrations of this love comes from Dr. Richard Selzer. I've shared this before, but it's just so appropriate for today's message that I couldn't help sharing it again in closing. In his book, Mortal Lessons, he describes a scene in a hospital room after he has performed surgery on a young woman's face. He writes, I stand by the bed where the young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in palsy and clownish. A tiny twig of the facial nerve, one of the muscles of her mouth, has been severed. She will be this way from now on. I promise you I had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh. I promise, nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut this little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed. And together, together they seem to be in a world all their own in the evening lamplight, isolated from me, private, almost. Who are they? I ask myself, he and this wry mouth I have made, who gaze at and touch each other so generously. The young woman speaks, will my mouth be like this forever? Yes, it will be like this for the rest of your life, I say. It's because the nerve was, was cut. She nods and is silent. But the young man smiles and says, I like it. It's cute. Selzer says, all at once, I know who this young man is. I understand and I lower my gaze because one is not bold in an encounter with the divine. Unmindful, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth and I am so close that I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate to hers to show her that their kiss still works. This is how Jesus has chosen to treat his bride, the church, no matter how twisted and disfigured we may be. As we receive such abundant love and grace from him as our true and better spouse, may he, through that love, empower us to extend that love to each of our spouses and indeed beyond to the rest of our world. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you for the gift of marriage. And yet, even as I thank you for this wonderful institution, I'm all too aware of the ways that I know I fall short. And I know because every other human being in this room 
is in fact human. If they're married, they fall short in their marriages. And if they're not married, they fall short in other kinds of relationships. And so the bottom line is we need you once again to stoop down to us where we were at and fill us with your grace and mercy and love that we might be able to extend that to those you have given us to walk in the midst of throughout this life. We ask this in the name of Jesus, who taught us to pray with one voice, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.